1: America. Anders Lee here. I'm joined by a uh, guy I voted for in 2014, a, a political candidate. I believe the first candidate we've interviewed on the show, a Green Party nominee for governor of New York State, Howie Hawkins. Thanks for joining me, Howie. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm going to start with kind of a, a cliche political question, but I think kind of a necessary one when you're interviewing a candidate. Why are you running for governor? Because
0: the problems we got in the state aren't getting fixed. I mean we have three dates for primaries. Everybody says they should all happen on the same day. We got a presidential primary in April, a federal primary in June, and a state local primary in September. The voters get confused. It lowers the turnout. Everybody says we should find one day for the primary. They can't even do that. And then we have serious problems that are not hard to solve like lead poisoning. There's a lot of news here in New York City about lead poisoning in NYCHA. you know, the fact is, it's about 1% of the kids, as far as I can figure. You know, it's over like 1,400. You have about 140,000 kids in the, in the housing. Um, in my city, it's 40%. In Buffalo, it's 40%. Utica, it's 38%. And this is 30, 47 years after the Surgeon General issued an urgent warning saying, you gotta test the children, treat them if their blood, um, and their blood is elevated and remediate the source of this lead poisoning which the biggest source is old lead paint that Mm -hmm. turns into dust and the kids ingest it and we have not solved that problem and when kids are lead poisoned it has serious neurological impact Uh, it retards or uh, limits the development of their motor skills their intellectual capacities and their emotions and behavior and this is permanent So we're poisoning the children and the criminal neglect by both parties is just astonishing. So that's a problem that they aren't solving. You know, the Greens, we're environmentalists, we care about good education. I mean, we put a high priority on that. Part of the problem is like my city of Syracuse, we've had public austerity next to private affluence, especially for the 1%. And we don't have enough building inspectors just to inspect the rental housing that we have in the city. And cover them, you know, inspect them once every three years. They just expanded it from three units and up to all units because a lot of our uh, homes where people rent are single or two-family homes, and uh, none of them are trained in lead, so they mm-hmm. they can't even uh, find where the lead is or uh, certify that the lead has been removed if, if there's been an attempt to. So, you know, that's because the city is strapped for finances. The state doesn't share revenues. It imposes unfunded mandates. And yesterday, Governor Cuomo said, I don't know if we need the millionaire's tax, four and a half billion dollars. Uh, he has to look at the budget. Well, we need money for services like lead paint. We got mm-hmm. massive infrastructure back up, what? 32 billion for NYCHA, just for the capital plan to get the mold and lead out and the elevators and the boilers working and the roofs repaired. Uh, 37 billion over 10 years for the fast forward plan that Andy Byford's put forward to get the MTA fixed. Eighty billion dollars in additional revenues for basic infrastructure repairs over the next twenty years. Four point two billion behind on the foundation aid formula, where the high poverty school districts are really being squeezed. Tuition free college, which Cuomo claims he did, he didn't. The Excelsior scholarship is, you know, reaching only three percent of the CUNY mm-hmm. SUNY students and two percent of the CUNY students. Uh, that's about a one and a half to two billion dollar uh, price tag. So I could go on and on,
1: uh-huh.
0: but. <laughs> You know, for Cuomo to say we don't need the millionaire's tax. Uh, so, yeah, I'm running and the Greens are running because the two major parties, they represent, you know, the rich and powerful and the corporations and not the people. And we got problems. We need them fixed.
1: And this is your third run for governor. Is that correct?
0: Correct. Okay. I ran in 2010. We got a ballot line out of that. You need 50,000 votes. I got 60,000 votes. And then in 2014, I got nearly 200,000 votes, nearly 5%. And uh, that moved us up over uh, working families and the Independence Party line. We didn't get the conservatives, maybe this year, mm. and jump up above them because they rank people or parties on the ballot according to the, their total vote. And I think that 5% forced Cuomo to look at what we were saying and not take us our votes for granted. So we got the fracking ban, which was one of our leading demands. We got paid family leave. We got talk about a $15 minimum wage. Down here in New York City, uh, you get it in large businesses at the be- by December thirty-first this year. If I go back to work at UPS, if I'm not governor, I've lost my seniority doing this campaign. I will uh, start at ten forty an hour. That's the minimum upstate. Mm. We get to twelve fifty, I think, at the end of twenty twenty-one, and then they're going to look at see. By the time we get to fifteen, it's still going to be a poverty wage. So Cuomo, we made him talk about it, but he didn't do it. Yeah. So that's why we can have leverage by getting a big vote but really we want to start winning these elections because we really mean what we're saying.
1: Right and short of being able to quit your job at UPS and become governor what is the uh, goal for 2018?
0: Well the the goal is to our slogan is "Demand man more Means mm-hmm. three things first of all just honest clean government you know Ralph Nader always says in elections we should raise our expectations. I mean the least we can expect is that we don't have a bunch of crooks running the government. Yeah. But we got the Speaker of the Assembly, the leader of the Senate, two of Cuomo's top aides, and a bunch of big campaign contributors going to jail for various charges of bid rigging, bribery, kickbacks. I mean it's like watching The Sopranos and then or the Trump administration. (laughs) And so uh, that's the first thing. Second thing is more means more reforms. You know, we got the on fracking and the paid family leave. Now we really want a, a livable minimum wage. Uh, we want a commitment to 100% clean energy by 2030, which is a real economic stimulus, as well as what we need to do, what the science says we need to do to deal with the climate emergency. Uh, single-payer health care. We're one vote away, in the state senate has passed the assembly four years in a row. It needs a governor committed to it. As far as I know, I'm the only one staying on the ballot that's committed to that. Mm-hmm. Um, So more reforms. And then beyond uh, piecemeal reforms, we need system change because capitalism concentrates wealth in the hands of a few. It translates into concentrated political power. And that's not just campaign contributions. That's their ability to withhold credit from the government if they don't like what it's doing. That's how they ran Dennis Kucinich, who kept his promise not to privatize the uh, public power utility in Cleveland. right? And uh, they forced the city into bankruptcy and him out of office. And you know we could go. Fans of
1: the uh, the show will know they they put a hit out on them, on Kucinich in yeah. the seventies I believe. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. The mafia didn't like it either. Uh-huh. They were cut into the deal. But um, so it's the ability of capital to strike or withhold credit. It's even more powerful than the campaign contributions. So if we don't change the system, what reforms we win are not secure. And we've seen that in the last forty years as uh, a lot of the New Deal Great Society programs and what they call social democracy in Europe have been rolled back because that period after World War II to the 70s was kind of an anomaly in the history of capitalism. Mm. And they were scared to death I think of the working class after uh, the tumult of the 30s and the fact that you know our soldiers had fought a war against fascism and they weren't you know they, MacArthur wanted to send them into China, the soldiers revolted in the Philippines uh, like they did during the Vietnam War and uh, they couldn't execute the plan so they came home and. I think they were scared enough to give them the GI Bill and some other benefits just to calm things down. That period is over, you know, organized labor has really been sliced and diced and uh, we got a political culture where people instead of looking to each other to fight the people exploiting them are turning on each other Mm. and Trump is promoting that to the hill. But he's not the only one. I remember when Clinton, you know, got out there with uh, these southern senators and a bunch of black men in stripes, you know, prisoners at Stone Mountain. Georgia, the spiritual home of the Ku Klux Klan, and announced his tough-on-crime agenda. You know, So it's both parties.
1: Yeah. Well, I definitely want to get more into the <coughs> theories of socialism in, in a minute, um, but th- you are running on a Green New Deal, as a, a lot of people in the Green Party are. Um, how does that uh, not only stimulate the economy, invest in, in renewable energy, but also help develop a cooperative or socialistic uh, form of economic activity.
0: Well when I talk about the Green New Deal it's not just a climate action program that happens to create a lot of jobs. It's about fulfilling the full promise of the New Deal as Franklin Roosevelt articulated it in his last State of the Union address 1945 when he called for a second Bill of Rights, what came to be called an economic Bill of Rights. The right to a living wage job or an income above poverty, a decent home, comprehensive health care, a good education, and these things were put in the democratic platform between the 40s and the 70s even when they had and every president who was a democrat has had this at least one two-year cycle where they had a majority in both houses never got any of those things done and then they started dropping them from the platform the last thing to go was national health insurance or what we call single payer today medicare for all that clinton got out when he got the nomination in 92. so the civil rights movement picked that up and added because you know the New Deal was mainly for white folks. You know, they excluded black folks and Mexicans because they said agricultural workers and domestic, domestic servants were not covered in a lot of these programs, like Social Security um, and the Fair Labor Standards Act. So, uh, the, new, the civil rights movement started. Uh, this
1: was uh, sh- but the, also the case in a lot of other, the, the social democratic countries you, you mentioned as well, who many, they had white agrarian workers who were also excluded from uh, their social democratic programs.
0: I did not know that, but that gives me something. I always always learn things as I'm campaigning. That's (laughs) that's interesting. I will look into that. Um, So, you know, they, they did the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, and then the freedom budget, and then King went ahead with the Poor People's Campaign, and they added to everybody should have these rights and they should be available without discrimination in employment, housing, and education. And that was an important addition. And so we want to fulfill those rights. The job guarantee Uh, universal public health insurance program massive expansion of public housing the most cost-effective way to provide affordable housing and do it the right way mixed income scatter site human scale it's a desegregation program it's a jobs program it's also a clean energy program because we can build these net zero carbon as well as an affordable housing program and in education we got a fully fund according to the foundation aid formula and then we need to work on that formula because uh it doesn't really take account of some of the really high needs districts like lafayette high school in buffalo 70 percent of the kids are immigrants speak another language first they're learning english they need a lot of additional people to help these kids make the transition to english and they don't have the staffing to do it so uh you know we need to fully fund education desegregate it get rid of the high stakes testing which is not about education it's about business and we can talk about that but the hedge fund guys that's why they give a lot of money to groups like Democrats for Education Reform mm. and Andrew Cuomo, who's pushed this whole agenda, and so forth. Um, so then we call it the Green New Deal because we've got to deal with the climate emergency. And that's where we get to the program for 100% clean energy by 2030. That's basically what climate scientists like James Hansen say we have to do to get to below 350 parts per million. Uh, carbon in the atmosphere. We're at 410 right now, so not just stopping the release, we got to regenerate the soils by going to regenerative organic agriculture and reforest, not just in New York, We our forests are pretty full, but around the world um, to begin to draw down if we're going to avoid runaway global warming and a climate catastrophe. And, you know, I'll just finish with this. I was really frustrated during the primaries when Cynthia Nixon was saying Cuomo should get behind the Climate and Community Protection Act. Um, and it actually codifies basically Cuomo's program. It says nothing about stopping frack gas infrastructure, nothing about the subsidies to nuclear power. There are no benchmarks for carbon zero construction or zero emission vehicles. Um, and it actually says in the legislation, uh, this is designed to help New York contribute to reaching the goal of 450 parts per million. Mm when 350 is the threshold, then, you know, the 350.org, mm-hmm. the McKibben's group, um, and he endorsed her. So, frustrating to be kind of not able to get into the debate here until after the primary. But now that it, we're here, um, we're pushing a bill called New York Off Fossil Fuels, New York Off. Uh, and its goal is net zero carbon emissions and 100% clean energy by 2030. No new construction by 2020 that it's not net carbon zero, no vehicles sold here that are not zero emissions by 2025. Every county and every city of 50,000 or more has to have a climate action plan integrated to the state plan. It involves agriculture, building, and transportation, not just electricity. The Cuomo plan is to get that 50% clean electricity by 2030. That's 28% of the carbon footprint. Okay, you get rid of 14% of the carbon. But then he, he's uh, supporting this frack gas infrastructure. One plant, the Competitive Power Ventures plant, which is buddy Joe Percoco got bribes to make sure it got permitted, mm-hmm. adds back 10% to our carbon footprint. So this is not solving the problem. And it's kind of frustrating to see a lot of uh, you know, liberal or progressive environmental groups get behind that bill, which doesn't deal with the problem. Yeah. And I think you know, their perspective is, well, we can only go as far as the Democrats are willing to go. If we do that, we're doomed. We've got to start having real solutions to the problems.
1: And why is Cuomo not behind Kappa? Uh,
0: I think it's maybe a card he's keeping in his deck, you know, and he can say, yeah, I'm for that. <laughs> he's already for it. There are some tweaks. I mean, the, uh, that bill says we get to zero emissions by 2050. Cuomo's been saying the goal is 80% reduction by 2050. So there are some little tweaks in it, but basically when you, when you look at it only focuses on electricity, which is you know only 28% of the carbon footprint. And uh, doesn't say anything about fossil fuel infrastructure, particularly frack gas. It's uh, not a climate bill. It's not really a climate bill.
1: Mm. Uh, well, I just want to switch to another issue, which has been a big one in your campaign's uh, education. I believe uh, this race in the past race as well, you had educators as your, your running mate. What is uh, your platform on public education in New York?
0: Yeah, I chose teachers because Cuomo's education policies have been so wrongheaded. And, you know, I ran with Brian Jones in 2014. And he was prominent opposing the high stakes testing. And uh, now I'm running with Lee, who's a leader in the opt out movement. She's a school teacher here in New York City, public school parent as well. Um, One of the top teacher union organizers in the country. She's a chapter leader. She was promoted by the uh, movement of rank and file educators, the reform caucus and UFT for UFT president. She got 20% of the vote in 2016, but she's been behind the scenes helping those unions in those right to work states, Kentucky, Oklahoma, West Virginia, conduct their strikes last spring. And uh, she just got back from Puerto Rico where she was working with their teachers union to fight back against the DeVos Trump plan to totally privatize public education in Puerto Rico in the wake of Hurricane Maria. So she's a great running mate. And so our education policy is yes, full funding, uh, and and right now, Governor Cuomo has the uh, Attorney General fighting in court against the parents and children of my city of Syracuse and New York City, parents and children in one lawsuit. There's another lawsuit of parents and children of seven small cities saying you haven't uh, met your promise with the foundation aid funding. That was the answer to the court decision in the campaign for fiscal equity that was enacted in 2007. They cut back because of the great recession in 2008 and they haven't caught back up. So these uh, parents and children are saying we want our money. The state's 4.2 billion cumulatively behind in that funding. Um, so that's number one. Number two, we got to desegregate our schools. Um, we had the most segregated schools in the country in New York and it's in the cities, New York city's the most segregated school district in the country. But, uh, Albany, Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo the latter three are right behind and so we're calling for controlled choice kind of thing they've done in uh, Wake County, Raleigh, North Carolina, Cambridge, Massachusetts and that's where within the school district the uh, parents and children get to rank the schools they want to go to in order of preference and then they use those preferences along with making sure all the schools are balanced by family income background. You can't use race now because of some court decisions but Income is a pretty good proxy for race, so you get class and race desegregation that way. And the thing about integration is it's the most powerful reform to close the achievement gap on standardized tests. The lower class kids' test scores come up. The middle class kids' test scores don't come down. Sometimes they go up as well. And all the kids do better on things like intellectual self-confidence, creativity, problem-solving, teamwork, the kinds of things you want smart citizens and productive workers to have. And so I think what has happened is when the courts started pulling, rolling back the uh, move for desegregation, with first there was a decision in the 70s about Detroit, you couldn't cross district lines to integrate, and then, uh, you know, they kept going and just removing race as a criterion, Uh, and that's been going on steadily. What came in its place was this high-stakes testing and so you had democrats as well as republicans saying ah oh, you know this is a civil rights issue of our times and all this nonsense and we're going to set up these charter schools which are not public they're no more public than lockheed martin is public because it gets pentagon contracts mm-hmm. you know and because of evil moskowitz and success academy our you know city comptroller here we can't look at the finances we don't know what kind of inside dealing they're doing we have a lot of suspicion um the times union up in albany did a expose of the Gulen schools which are Linked to this Gulen Islamic movement, uh, Turk mostly Turk. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and you know they have the teachers giving kickbacks, so those salaries are getting from the public trough to the Gulen movement, and they're doing a lot of insider dealing in terms of who gets the contracts. And um, so look, and then you know Juan Gonzalez did a famous uh, article back in 2010 in the Daily News about how up in Albany, uh, that the investors, hedge fund guys, were doubling their money in the real estate uh, involved in setting up the charters up there, most of which have failed since. And they can double their money because there's a new markets tax credit at the federal level, 39% of everything you lend every year you get to write off your taxes. And plus the interest coming back in the principle, you can double your money in seven years. So when I got going on this campaign this year, I wanted to reread that article and I Googled and the first thing came up was Investopedia saying, yeah, you can double your money in seven <laughs> years with this new markets tax credit in the charter industry. That's what I mean. It's about business, it's not about education. Uh, you know, you narrow the curriculum, you teach to the test. I mean, it's atrocious. Like down here in New York City, uh, de Blasio said, okay, we're going to open up the eight elite schools. And you know, I'm looking at that and I'm wondering, well, why only eight good schools? And then I read some more and I found out 40% of the schools don't have physics courses. And then I read about a school the other day, they can't even afford a track team you know, track is, of all the sports is one of the cheapest, you know, the kids buy their own shoes and you just basically need to bus them to the track meet. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some things in the field events, you need some equipment, but um, there are really no science courses in 40% of the schools. So, and then I find out the kids are tracked. They, they, You have the elites putting their three and four year olds through test prep, so when they get to kindergarten, they can score well on the standardized test, which puts them into the tracks. So from kindergarten, when i was in kindergarten we didn't read we just played we just learned how to play with yeah. each other you know now they
1: i don't know what first grade at second grade i didn't read. well so about second grade i learned to read
0: yeah well it's not developmentally appropriate is yeah. what the teachers tell me and so it just uh and you know instead of starting integration at the high school it needs to start right there in kindergarten in preschool and uh so that's where the controlled choice comes in and uh they're actually beginning to do some of that this guy Carranza the new uh, Chancellor here is uh, seems to you know have really want to do something about segregation that's good Um, but I can tell you upstate what we're gonna have to do is redraw the district lines Mm -hmm. because like in my city of Syracuse there are school districts right adjacent to the city school district uh, which have you know 10,000 more dollars per student available because they're property tax based. the disparity between these districts adjacent to Syracuse and the city is, is as great as any around the country, like Detroit and, I guess, Wayne County and Gross Point, I think is the name of that county. You know, it's one of the biggest, maybe the biggest in the country. In Michigan. Yeah, yeah, and we're like right close to it. So we need to provide incentives from the governor's office to, you know, he talks about consolidation. I think, he thinks that will uh, make local government less costly and we'll be able to lower the property taxes. Yeah. The studies show that won't happen. But for the purpose of the integration, uh, you do need to draw the district lines so you have a diverse body to draw upon. And I think we got to go to the middle class people in the suburbs and say, you know, don't be afraid of these inner city kids. You're actually, by integrating, you're going to get a better education right. for your kids as well. And uh, that's a tough argument to make, but I think, you know, that's the one we got to start making.
1: And beyond the uh, <coughs> policy regarding funding of schools and, and uh, integration, um, how do you and future Lieutenant Governor Lee, no relation to myself, um, want to change the content of what's being taught, the, uh, the form of, of curriculum in public schools.
0: Well, we want a more rounded curriculum and bring back things, you know, physical education. I mean, when you're in elementary school, if you can't get out to recess, I mean, you'd be going bonkers inside. I yeah. mean, I, c- I can still feel that from when I was in elementary school. <laughs> I lived for recess and I went crazy and I was calmed down when I came back in. Um, So, and arts, and music, and uh, instead of learning how to bubble, fill out bubbles on a test and answer those questions, um, how about we get together and solve a problem, you know? Mm. uh, Learning by doing, something uh, John Dewey used to talk about in progressive education. I'm not an educator, I was kind of uh, I played hooky a lot. I I was going out to demonstrations in high school, I was kind of hung out with an older crowd, because of sports and by the time I got to high school they were all moving on so I actually um, am not an expert on education that's why I had teachers as my running mates but um, I think look what I want to see is we got to end the tracking within the schools that's part of segregation and I was able to go to a high school that had a lot of vocational had one college prep track I took the minimum for college prep I took vocational courses and I got into an Ivy League school Probably couldn't do it today, but you know it was a sports thing as well as uh, you know I did well what enough in the college. Did you play? I was three sports: football, basketball, baseball. I would have ran yeah. track, but you can't do two sports in the same season in California where I came up. So, yeah, I was a real jock, and that's uh, that was my thing. Although the '60s, the politics got me. I, they, it yeah. got me before I knew they had got me. You know, I would show up to support, and pretty soon I was a core activist. And by the time I got to college, people were pushing me out to speak and and then you know i just got more and more committed to it because you know over the problems from you know civil rights in vietnam in the 60s the nuclear power we were able to stop in the 70s the anti-apartheid movement um you know work in the labor movement from my various jobs and uh just watching you know since that recession that hit at the end of 73 74 75 the whole tone among working people and even middle-class students changed because it was it hit pretty hard, and it kind of um, after the the long boom of the 50s and 60s was a shock, and uh, a lot of people were laid off, and so the whole climate changed there, and uh, so the economic justice issues become bigger and bigger and bigger as we go along. Yeah,
1: do you did you find that people became depoliticized in like communities like the one you came from? Like, do you think? someone with your background today would be uh have that same exposure to the the radical left
0: um you know we thought we were radicals but most of us and i'll exclude myself but um they they were instant you know Maoists. they were militants you know they're into the direct action but they really weren't studying capitalism and its socialist alternatives so um you know first tom hayden and then bobby Segal and elaine brown in california started running inside the Democratic Party. Um, Jesse Jackson brought whatever was left into the Democratic Party. And so the possibility coming out of the new left of an independent left political force, I think, you know, got co opted by the Democrats. And, you know, I know the career paths of a lot of these people, they were super radicals, ultra lefts in the late 60s and early 70s. And by the 80s, they were saying, I'm tired of losing, I'm getting paid you know I'm a Democrat. (laughs) That was I think what the fate of the baby boomers. The next generation were kind of brought up in the Reagan era. It's very individualistic, self-centered. I mean in the Greens and every movement I'm in there seems to be a generation gap there. Not many from that generation. And now the new generation, the millennials, they're getting their butts kicked by the economy and they are you know a majority of them are at least socialist curious. Uh And uh, you know they they're if they go to college, they're coming out of debt. If they don't go to college, they've got crappy jobs. Even if they do go to jo- college, they can't have the kind of economic security that my generation could have got with a, you know, a regular union job or a professional standing. The professions, you know, the teachers, the nurses, like the teachers with this high stakes testing, even doctors, you know, because the insurance companies are dictating what they can do. And they spend more time trying to find out if what they want to do is covered than they do actually providing the service, the, the procedure. So, um yeah. That t- so the younger generation I think is uh, you know, up coming up and uh being more active.
1: Yeah. So I, uh, I definitely want to get to the millennial uh, vote in in a second, but uh can you talk a little bit about your um involvement in in political movements throughout that those decades and how uh you came to be involved in the Green Party and why um you identified elections and electoral politics as being a, uh, a, a, a tool that uh, you're involved with.
0: Well, it was the 60s in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm coming up in a working class, multiracial community, so civil rights was in the air. It was in church. It was on the street. It was at the rec center. Um, I got a set of cousins who are uh, the chi- children of a Japanese war bride. And being Japanese back in the 50s was tough because, you know, the Japanese had just come out of internment camps. Yeah. So now, this woman didn't, but, uh, you know, they were treated. Some of the Panther Party members were Japanese in the Bay Area and Seattle. And uh, so I was just aware. I mean, I had, they were in Virginia. They were Army brats and stationed in Virginia. And as they headed to kindergarten, they were headed for the colored schools. And I looked around my neighborhood and said, man, they're not that many white people here. We won't have any kids at our school if we were in Virginia just didn't seem right you know and then when I'm 12 uh, I'm coming up in a Republican family that kind of prided the early Republicans free soil we got an ancestor that was involved in starting the free soil party and that became part of the Republican Party Um, they were for civil rights Um, but then Ronald Reagan that year is campaigning against the fair housing law that had just passed a referendum to repeal it speaking for the Republican Party so I said "Nah, that's that's not the Republican Party that I was told it was so let's see what the Democrats do and instead of seating the Freedom Democrats from Mississippi, they sat the Dixiecrats. So I'm 12 years old saying, Where's my party? And my party turned out to be the Peace and Freedom Party, Peace in Vietnam, freedom was the civil rights slogan in 68. Then we had the People's Party, of which Peace and Freedom was part, ran Ben Spock, the baby doctor, in 1972. And I've stayed with it, the Citizens Party in uh, 1980 with the environmental scientist Barry Commoner running for president. And then we formed the Green Party first meeting to organize it in 1984 and it stuck, it got a toll hold in politics. It it really, at the national level, I don't think we've been effective organizing anything, but it's an idea that caught on, it's international, and people that got sick and tired of the Democrats uh, betraying them or failing their expectations, particularly environmental activists and peace activists, and increasingly in the last 10 or 15 years, you know, racial justice and economic justice activists. Uh, They've come to the Green Party and sustained it at the local level. So, you know, I've always said we need a people's party one that stands, you know, without compromise for justice and uh, So I've been involved but at the same time I've been involved in social movements Mm -hmm. I think you got to have both right if you have politicians without a social, social movement keeping them honest and driving them forward They're gonna make deals to, you know become professional politicians and they won't be your friend By the same token, if we don't have candidates independent of the two parties, and we're making progressive demands and we can have mass demonstrations, like in the lead up to the Iraq war, we were the world's second superpower, according to the New York Times, because we had such massive demonstrations here and abroad against that war. And it just rolled off the backs of the establishment. And then the Democrats nominated John Kerry, who said reporting for duty. Mm -hmm. He wanted to surge in Iraq more than Bush got for a surge. And so, you know, to me, that was the peace movement, because they got, you know, the main coalition basically got behind uh, Kerry by saying, making their slogan in their big march of the election year against the Bush agenda rather than out now, like we were saying during Vietnam, out of Iraq. Um, So, you know, I, I think, okay, the movements get taken for granted unless They can also vote for an alternative. Yeah. And then even if the alternative doesn't win the office, like I think happened in 2014 here in New York, who does get in office got to look at those votes and compete for them by, you know, accepting some of those demands.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, You are a a teamster. You're a a, a worker. Um, But it does seem like the Green Party has had some difficulty uh, in... in uh, integrating with the labor movement. Why do you think that is, and is that an obstacle that can be overcome?
0: I think workers have had trouble integrating with the labor movement in yeah. most unions. You know, the bureaucracy detached from the rank and file. And uh, I have to say, you know, of all the groups on the left, the Greens, as in terms of their base of people, are the most working class I know. I mean, the ideological left, you know, mostly socialist groups tend to be campus based, or you know, people come out of a university education. The Greens, I mean, we got lots of veterans, lots of blue-collar workers, construction workers, steel workers, teamsters, um, as well as the people that have been attracted to Green parties around the world from the caring uh, professions, teaching, nursing, uh, education, you know, professors. So, you know, that's kind of the mix we have. Um, but the labor movement, you know, they just like business, you know, they like to back winners. So they have, I think the door is open. So, you know, the labor movement here in New York has been supporting most of them, those Republicans that have been in the sen- state Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just see it as transactional and very short term and not really uh, about class solidarity and a class program. It's about what can we get for our union with these politicians we got. And uh, so a lot of the Greens are involved in, you know, like Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Uh, we have one of the Teamsters, who uh, works at the airport, uh, handling baggage, uh, running for governor for the Green Party in Arizona, Angel Torres, um, just to give you an example. So, uh, we need we need at the rank and file level to uh, really take back our unions, so they are more democratic and they are you know social justice unions, not just right. business unions. Um, and a lot of Greens are involved in the workers' centers. You know, that uh, organized with immigrants, people in, uh, you know, temporary labor markets. Um, And so I think that's, to me, that's where the best organizing I've seen is going on. Um, A lot of times the immigrant communities have more solidarity with each other, you know, partly just out of necessity, partly out of cultural tradition. America, you know, we've been told that, you know, you're on your own. If you're not doing well, it's your fault. And a lot of people ingest that. I think our education system, and, 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 you know, puts that into the children, especially with this high-stakes testing, you know. It's about ranks and, you know, your score. And, um,
1: and you not a rank-and-file rank.
0: Yeah, and yes. to solve the problem, you can't talk to anybody,
1: Yeah,
0: you know. I mean, we get ahead as a culture, as a civilization, because our culture becomes something we all have access to. Mm-hmm. but we're taught in school, no, you don't share it, like it's yeah. intellectual property. Yeah. So, you know, there's, that gets back to your earlier question, you know, how would we change the education system? Um, I think we should emphasize a lot more uh, collaborative learning. And we know from the studies that kids learn at least as much from their peers as they learn from their teachers. Right. That's why integration works, because the things that we want all the children to have that middle-class kids can bring, all the kids get, because kids like to be part of the group conform, and uh, it becomes part of the school culture for kids that have been deprived. Right.
1: Uh, the Green Party does have some ideological diversity. I believe, though, there is a plank um, stating that's an explicit anti-capitalist party. But you do have, you know, uh, some members who I would say are a little more social democratic. How would you distinguish yourself? You identify as a socialist from uh, someone like a Cynthia Nixon, or Bernie Sanders, or even a, a Ralph Nader or a Jill Stein?
0: Well, I believe that socialism, a central tenet of that tradition is that we need social ownership of the major means of production in order to have economic democracy and therefore political democracy. And what we've seen from Bernie Sanders, who explicitly rejected that in his socialism speech, you know, in the end of 2015, uh, because the media was saying, hey Bernie, we hear you're a socialist. And to his credit he didn't deny that, but then he gave a speech which kind of said socialism is the New Deal. Mm. And that's old-fashioned liberalism. There's nothing wrong with a lot of those programs, but as I argued earlier, you can't sustain them with, without a socialist uh, economy being the dominant form of production because otherwise the rich concentrate power economically and then politically and get rid of those programs. Um, so. I think one thing that distinguishes uh, what I'm talking about is I hold that central tenet of the socialist tradition of social ownership and cooperative production. And then the other is independent politics, independent of the capitalist parties. And that is the great lesson of the revolutions in 1848 that swept across Europe and into Latin America for the franchise, for the working class. and the working class was in coalition with the rising business class against the landlords to get the vote and some economic reforms. And the landlord class cut a deal in most countries with the business class say, so, okay, we'll give you the vote and we'll give you some reforms. But just join with us and keep the workers out of this because they're the majority and then they'll really screw us. Mm-hmm. And so they learned, you know, the working class is not going to emancipate itself except by its own action, So it's got to have its own party. And I think The reason we don't have a left that's a major force in this country is since the 30s, you know, we followed the policy of uh, the communists, the Popular Front, you know, unite with the liberal bourgeoisie against the fascists. And uh, you can argue whether that was tactically required at the time, but that's just been the policy ever since so that uh, socialists end up, you know, doing the legwork for liberals running for office and never talk about much about socialism or the socialist critiques of capitalism.
1: Um, so what do you make of the argument that, yes, we need an independent party, but because of the way the United States is structured, uh, the, um, what constitutes a party is really a diffuse thing. So there's no discipline that somebody has to uh, engage with when they declare themselves a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, the, the elections, the primary elections are administered by the state. They're not administered by parties. And that the real party... Um, should be constituted, what what defines a party the way the left should look at it is the the membership, the the volunteers, the funding, and not the ballot line, that the ballot line is more or less uh, irrelevant.
0: Well, we actually need a first party. You know, the socialists in New York elected five or six people to the assembly in 1918, Mm -hmm. and they were anti-war, and so the assembly didn't seat them. They called a special election. Those districts re-elected those people. So then the legislature did a massive study of quote unquote subversive movements all over the world. It's it's 5,000 pages thick. But you look at the New York section and it says the Socialist Party is not a party, it's an organization. Because you had to agree to principles, you had to pay dues, you had to attend local meetings. And God forbid working class gets organized. That's what the politicians were scared of. And that's they use that to justify excluding these people that were duly elected. That's what we need to establish. And uh, the thing about having a ballot line that has a distinct identity is we don't get confused with the Democrats and Republicans. I mean, we have eight ballot lines in New York, but really only three parties. There are five parties that routinely give their ballot lines to one of the major party candidates. Mm -hmm. You know, Conservatives give it to the Republicans, Working Families gives it to the Democrats, Women's Equality gives it to the Democrats, Independents, well, they're for sale for the highest bidder. That's just purely patronage and games. Um, and who do I leave out? Anyway, that's the game they play. The Greens, you know, libertarians. Like, yeah, well, the libertarians don't have a ballot line yet. Oh, they? they don't. No. Okay. But maybe after the election, they will. Um, but the Greens, you know, like right now, the Working Families Party is going through all these changes. Do we continue with Nixon or do we put Cuomo on there or somebody else? And we got to get fifty thousand to keep our ballot line. Blah 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 blah. And for the Greens, you know, we know what we stand for. We're running on it. It's not a question. And we don't have to go through all these rigmaroles. So, and the thing about having an independent identity and voice is, then you can. People notice that it's another alternative. Whereas if you're in and out of the Democratic Party, you know what the hell are you? And I think you get lost in the sauce. You know, you can vote for Cuomo on the working families line, but you know only the real uh, insiders are going to even notice. You know how many of those votes came on the working families line. There'll be Cuomo votes, and I think Cuomo says, I got to vote. One way or another, I got to vote. Um, in fact, when the Working Families Party first got started, a county legislator, and, and this was a black Democrat committee meeting which happened to be in a bookstore next to the Green's office, so I was listening in, and he asked Carl McCall, what do we need this Working Families Party for? McCall, then being the comptroller, soon to run for governor in four years. And uh, we already got the Democratic Party, is what this county legislator said. And McCall said, look, we're too conservative now for a lot of people, we the Democrats. This is the Clinton era. We need to give them a new look, sure. but we're going to run the same people. That's, that's what it's about. And uh, you, need an, you need an independent identity, and then you need to run against the SOBs and the two major parties. I mean, what happens is, like take Bernie Sanders, you know, in order to get even into the primary and into the debates. He had to agree to endorse Clinton at the end. I mean, everybody assumed that's who would win. Now, Bernie did better than probably even he thought, and it did become somewhat competitive, and the DNC colluded against him, but he, that, he had to make that promise. And so you can't stay. The parties may be diffuse, but there's a, there's a power structure there, and it starts with the big funders. They're the ones that pre-select who's going to be a serious candidate in major races. And then when we get to the primaries, it's like Boss Tweed used to say, you can vote for anybody you want as long as I get to choose who the candidates are. <laughs> so the money chooses who you get to choose among and it's very slick. The old Soviet Union had one party, you know, they rule and you get to vote yes or no I guess. Here the people that run the country give you a bunch of choices but it's their people. And uh, so, you know, choose which one you want to rule you but they've already been preselected. We need something completely independent of that. and. Uh, with its own identity and voice and oppositional stance.
1: Sure, I mean I certainly, you know, would uh and when the option was put to me and some of my friends in 2014, you said you could uh, fill in Cuomo under the working families line or uh vote for you and I believe you actually did better than than that option, right? You got more votes than Yeah,
0: yeah, we came in fourth in
1: terms of lines getting votes and they came in fifth. Okay. Um But uh, in the Green Party, as we were talking about, there is still some, there are, you know, uh, there are liberals, right? Isn't there a risk that the Green Party could also be co-opted by uh, a more social democratic mission?
0: Yeah, I think that happened uh, with Nader. You know, when Nader, you know, stood in 96 and actually ran in 2000, we got a lot of refugees from Jackson campaigns, Jerry Brown campaigns, you name it. And they brought with them their perspective of the Democratic Party. And our structures were not clear enough, I think, and our principles not clear enough, that uh, they tended to dominate the discourse until the backlash against Nader in 2002, and they they ran. I mean, they ran for cover. Mm -hmm. Um, So we kind of went through that and uh, came out the other end, I think, stronger with a a better commitment to the the kind of principles we have now. yeah it's it that's a matter of education and uh, persistence I mean this debate of are we anti-capitalists we had that at the very first meeting in 1984 in the midst of the Reagan era and uh, you know we were swimming upstream you know Reagan was pushing on the right and Jesse Jackson was where a lot of the left liberals were going and we were saying no we need something independent and uh, but what does that independence mean? Is it yeah. is it a socialist alternative or is it uh, you know, the one of the slogans was neither left nor right. There were some pretty <laughs> flaky ideas, if you ask me. That slogan actually came from somebody who became one of the eco fascists of Germany, um, and basically protect the environment by an anti immigrant stance. Right, yeah. And uh so when we ran up the green flag, all kinds of people saluted and it's you know, it took a while to sort out. But I think what we have now is a a gr- left green party, like you have in Iceland or or the UK, um, we're to the left of the German Greens. French Greens are pretty left. I don't have a good sense of all the green parties around the country. We're certainly like the, not like the Mexican Greens, who seem to be a front group for the old pre, mm-hmm. you know, very corrupt. So, <clears throat> but any word you use, you know, somebody's going to use it for ill purposes. Right. You know, Hitler yeah. put socialist in the Nazi uh-huh. party name. So. You know, you, you gotta
1: gotta define what you mean and then mean it. Yeah. yeah. Well, do you think that uh, it may be more effective for you know? The, I know you were making a distinction between state green parties and the and the national green party, but whoever the nominee is in uh, 2020 may be talking more about socialism, more about uh, going further than social democracy.
0: That's certainly the trend within the green party. Okay. Um, that you know, plank, which I think is kind of clunky, it's not real clear, but yeah. it does say we we want ecological socialism and a cooperative economy. And uh, I think that's where most of the Greens are. I, you know, they realize two things. One is that capitalism uh, drives, the competition drives blind and relentless growth, and that's destroying the environment. We can't sustain ourselves in that economy. And secondly, it concentrates wealth, and the rich are getting richer, and the poor, all right. If they're not getting poorer; they're struggling. And uh, so, I think people see that you know exploitation is wrong, and we need an alternative where, when people work, they get the full fruit of their labor, and uh, the portion we put into the public sector has got to be democratically accountable. Um, you know, I just as an example, you know, do you think night should be as bad as it was if, you know. Uh, half the board was elected by tenants? Probably not. Yeah, they mm-hmm. would they would hire people and if, you know, the, the bad performance, it that seems, is going on and, uh, you know, doing repairs and, uh, or just not doing anything that we've seen some exposés about, you know, they they'd be on top of that and would not tolerate it. So, you know, we got... Socialism doesn't just mean, you know, government ownership or public ownership it's got to mean democracy or it's not socialism Mm. it's just state capitalism where you know the state does the things the private sector can't do but does it in a way that doesn't really benefit the people and becomes a a feeding trough for other private interests
1: yeah Uh, well you mentioned dsa earlier democratic socialists of america and full disclosure i am uh, a member Um, you are seeking their endorsement correct
0: yeah i filled out the questionnaire for the city for uh, the hudson valley sent a video to the Suffolk uh, group. I met with the Buffalo group the other night, um, hoping to meet with the, the little Syracuse group, you know, that's my home city. Um, so yeah, I will take endorsements from any of them. And I know there are people in the New York city DSA that are trying to, uh, move that process forward. And I would welcome their endorsement. I have the endorsement of, uh, three socialist groups, um, solidarity, the socialist party USA and the international socialist organization. And, uh, DSA is the big uh, dog in the pack right now. Mm -hmm. It's just people flooded into it. So uh, I definitely want to talk to those people even if I don't get the endorsement. Um, The formal endorsement would be nice but the most important thing is that DSA members vote for me and not Cuomo. I mean if you're a socialist it doesn't seem a hard choice to me.
1: Right. Uh, Well in terms of the endorsement do you have um, an ask uh, beyond just the formal endorsement do you want DSA members to, to canvas for you? Because this is something with, uh, we're discussing right now, what that endorsement would entail.
0: Yeah, and I from all reports, you guys have been doing a good job with that. And that was part of the questionnaire, and I said yes. And, uh, you know, I think they wanted to know if uh, I would something about their organization keeping their names or would I share names with them. I said, yeah, and will you share names? I asked them, would they share names with me? <laughs> you know, I, they can have access to our contacts. As I have no problem with that. You know, go out, talk to them, canvass them, get them to out to vote. Um, so yeah, I think that that's something people on the left need to learn and um, while I don't know in detail, I've been getting lots of reports that DSA has been doing a good job because the Greens tend to attract activists. You know, these are the mm-hmm. people that show up at the demonstrations. They're reliable. You know, when you go to demonstrations, a lot of those people are Greens, but not enough of us are organizers. Who are you know taking the initiative to get things started and then go out and talk to people and recruit them, and continue to communicate with them, and to develop their leadership. Um, you know my model is uh, SNCC. Um, I was sort of indirectly mentored by them in the Bay Area. The a, Student
1: uh, Nonviolent Coordinating Committee,
0: yeah. um, and then they came back up and started the Berkeley Free Speech Movement because. Uh, they want to do civil rights work, and the university didn't want them to, and they sat around a police car, and then in his brow Plaza, and a whole lot of things. It was a, uh, quite a thing back in the mid-60s. Um, so what they did in Freedom Summer, right, to me, was the lesson that everybody should think about is the, or, the chief organizer and, and administrator of Freedom Summer, which was this project of voter registration, voter education. Um, And building a political party, the Freedom Democratic, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, Um, the guy who was running it was named Robert Moses, a Harvard-trained mathematician, you know, middle-class guy, and everybody looked up to him, and he was almost seen as the second coming. He was quite a, you know, strength of character and inspiration to people. And when they formed the Freedom Democrats, they assumed he'd be the spokesperson, and he, no, you guys got to elect people, and I'm not running. That's what an organizer does. It, it helps people come forward. And who came forward? Fannie Lou Hamer, sharecropper, who then spoke for the delegation when they were offered the insulting compromise of two honorary delegates while the segregationists got to sit at the Democratic Convention. And she said, no, we're not accepting that. we we worked too hard. And uh, I think it's where she said we're tired of being tired, or, you know, and yeah. uh, famous uh, rejection. And Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin and the other civil rights leaders were telling them, "Take it. It's progress." <laughs> you know, and the lesson there is, you know, the people most affected are the ones that should make the decision. Uh, the middle class folks that are, you know, kind of half foot in the system, um, they're more willing to make compromises that sell out the working class. Right. So for me, that's that's what we got to be doing. It's developing, uh, you know, grassroots people into leaders and organizers. And uh, whether it's in the party building or the movement work, we do. So we need more organizers, not just activists.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, in terms of voters, what is your pitch to um, maybe people who are not necessarily socialists who voted for Cynthia Nixon, uh, they like Bernie, um, they're just, you know, a little worried about a, a Republican administration in New York so they aren't sure if they would wanna fill in the Green Party line.
0: Well use your Democratic votes to get a Democratic State Senate and then we'll have the State Senate and the Assembly, we'll put a check if Molinaro's the governor. He won't be able to do much damage. Right. Um, and then the other thing is if you don't vote for what you want you'll never get it. Yeah. You know if you vote for what you don't want Cuomo because y- you don't want more Molinaro, you know that vote will be seen as a support for, for uh, Cuomo's agenda, which, you know, his latest thing is he's not sure we're going to continue the millionaires' taxes, $4.5 billion a year. Uh, he says, I don't know if we need it. I mean, NYCHA, the MTA, other infrastructure around the state, the schools, tuition free college, uh, how about public defenders for everybody who needs it? Now it's dependent on the counties, and, you know, there's no defense there. Speedy trials. I mean, there's so many things. Getting rid of the lead, you know, the public sector has been depleted. Um, so, if we're going to have good public services, infrastructure that works, we're going to have to invest money. Well, Cuomo, you know, his conservative instincts are coming out now that the primary is over. He's telling his donors, uh, eh, we may get rid of the millionaire's tax." Mm-hmm. So, anybody who is a liberal who has progressive values, you know, socialists and liberals share generally progressive values. Uh, Cuomo's not your guy. I am.
1: All right. And, uh, yeah, what, what? how different would a Molinaro administration be from the current one?
0: Oh, he'd, he'd push, you know, he just said he wanted to cut, I think, the state budget by 30% in order to justify property tax cuts. Um if he proposed that, he'd be laughed at by, you know, both the Senate and the Assembly. Even the Republicans in the, in those houses would say, "Wait a minute, you're cutting a program that I'm, you know, people in my district like," um, and you know the services that we need are not being delivered. We've been mm-hmm. through four decades of uh, austerity, and the infrastructure's showing it. And we have new needs, like we're getting these toxic algae blooms in the lakes upstate because the weather's getting warmer and we're not dealing with the uh, fertilizers that run off and provide the, the, the food for this algae. Um, so we're gonna need to put like in Scania Atlas Lake, which is the water supply for Syracuse. We may have to build filters, you know, that costs many millions of dollars. So, you know, if, if Molinero thinks he's gonna govern the state the way that people want by not providing that kind of infrastructure that we need, I think he's got another thing coming Um, so in the end he's gonna have to deal with the people but um, I don't think he's gonna even get close (laughs) you know he's got a third of the money that Astorino had the last Republican candidate comes from a smaller county Astorino had the Westchester base this guy's got the Dutchess County base Um, and this is a anti-Trump year and uh, Molinaro's probably the best thing he did was not vote for Trump, you know, he touts that. And this is how silly the debate gets. Cuomo calls him uh, Trump's mini-me. And Molinero says, but I didn't vote for Trump. He vote, he wrote in a Republican congressman. Um, so I'm, I think that's another reason you need Greens in these elections. We we bring up real issues. It makes yeah. the whole election better. And actually Democrats do better when we're in. People think we spoil election, we divide the vote, but uh, in my district, uh, uh, 24th District Congress, the only time a Democrats won uh, since, I think there was one guy got in there during the height of the Vietnam War as an anti-war candidate, uh, where the two times Greens ran for that office. Um, 2008 when I ran and 2012 when Ursula Rosen ran. And that's because the guy who won, Dan McFay, his instinct, and he now works for the Third Way Institute, he's that kind of centrist Democrat, was to move to the right you know, and try to get as many votes in the center, in the suburbs, and so forth. And uh, when the Green was in there, he had to like compete with what we were saying, and he sounded more progressive, and mm-hmm. actually made him more popular, and made the Dem- Republican look like an extremist. Mm. So, you know, I think even though we don't win the vote, we don't hurt the Democrats that much. Right. We actually helped some of them do, you know, do better than they would have done without us.
1: Even Gore in in Florida, from what I've heard, he started talking about oil. The oil industry more in the environment When, when Nader was, was threatening him In, uh, in 2000 Yep uh, What uh, Do you think there's a chance he would do better than, than Molinaro Yeah the trend
0: is to the left And it's anti-Trump um, I think there's a small chance um, There's a small chance I could win You know with four What do we got now We got Republican, Democrat, Green, Libertarian Serve America movement, which is a center-right establishment effort, that's five, at least five and maybe six candidates if uh, Nixon stays in or working families run somebody beside Cuomo. Um, that's a lot of ways to divide the vote. So, And the majority of people in the state are progressive, and I'm really the only progressive running. So uh, I should win. It's just, you know, we're dealing with history, tradition, and a dynamic that in a year the blue wave is, you know, going against Trump. So, yeah, every election is different. So, uh, anything can sea happen. foam
1: green this, hopefully. See
0: foam know. green? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I say, blue. you know, you ride the blue wave where the greens are running, but ride the green wave where the greens are running.
1: Yeah. And are is are you looking like uh, there's going to be another debate or? I expect so there much? to be a debate,
0: uh, Cuomo. The last two times around and with the Nixon primary, he had a debate late. He set the terms. The media, unfortunately, won't have a debate without him because I've been asked to be in many debates, and then in the end, they said, Well, Cuomo wouldn't come to ours. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's WABC down here or uh, the NBC station in Syracuse or, you know, uh, Spectrum, back then, Time Warner. You know, Cuomo in the end. I think it was a Monday night football night, but it was late in the campaign in Buffalo on public TV, not a big viewership. I expect we'll get that. I have called for four debates in four places on four topics and said the media and civic organizations should set it up and then tell us, just you know negotiate with us on timing. But otherwise, you know, if Cuomo doesn't show up, there'll be four or five of us beating up on him and he'll look pretty bad because he didn't even show up. What's he afraid of? And uh, what's he hiding? Um, So I want one on the economy, one on government reform, one on climate and the environment, and one on the social issues from housing, education, and transportation to criminal justice and civil rights. And uh, I think that's what the voters ought to have, what they deserve. Um, But it's really up to the media to give a backbone and tell Cuomo this is the way it's going to be. Otherwise, he'll dictate the terms.
1: Uh, last question as we, we wrap up. I open with kind of a hack cliche uh, journalist question, and I I'm going to end with with one too that I actually am curious about. Um, are you a a person of faith, and if if not, how does your relationship with spirituality guide you um, as a as a candidate and as a person?
0: I um, I think I have faith in uh, the scientific method. I'm with that guy that led the moral majority warned you about a secular humanist
1: well uh thank you for your time thanks for sitting down with me
0: thanks for having me yeah howie hawkins Science and rationality i mean the enlightenment um i guess there's some faith in that um i did spend a lot of time coming up in uh actually black black churches you know a black baptist church and a an ame church um because my dad wanted to go to church but he usually was had been drinking the night before so mm-hmm. he, you know That's where my friends were going. So, um, you know, I got a sense of what that's about. I think Jesus was a working class revolutionary and anti-imperialist. I think I'm like Jefferson. You know, he cut out all the mystical stuff out of the Bible and created Jefferson's Bible Mm -hmm. with its moral stories. Yeah, I can dig that.